I asked you, hey, I want to sell you a bottle of Avion water, uh, Paris. How much are you going to pay for it? I don't know, you might say uh, $3 or three euros, whatever, but maybe your willingness to pay is lower. Let's say I ask you that question after you've been wandering through the desert for 20 days. You, you might be more like, I will pay you everything in my bank account right now because my alternative is I'm going to die of thirst out here in the, wandering mm. in the desert. You know, so the context, the customer context is incredibly important to understanding that willingness to pay is fundamentally driven by a customer's perceived value. So as mm -hmm. marketers, if we don't really think about the control that we have over perceived value, we're fundamentally uh, hamstringing ourselves. Whenever we're going out and measuring this, we need to be very cognizant of you know, who are we talking to. Every SaaS company plays for high stakes, but what does it take to dominate the market right now? Welcome to Paris Talks Marketing, the podcast where we dive deep into the latest trends and strategies in SaaS marketing that are really working today. I'm your host, Paris, and our guests are SaaS CMOs, founders, and specialists, and we discuss one trendy topic in the industry per episode. Ready to unlock the true power of marketing strategy? In this theme, we'll explore the world of cutting-edge marketing strategies and tactics, that are shaking up the SaaS industry. We'll share insights on testing new tactics and uncover the latest developments from digital landscape giants like Google, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'll also explore how AI is revolutionizing the digital landscape and transforming marketing tactics. So grab your headphones and get ready for a marketing strategy masterclass with Paris Talks Marketing. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, my guest is Dan Belkowski. Dan is the founder and chief pricing officer at Product Tranquility, based in Austin, Texas. Dan focuses on helping high-volume B2B SaaS CEOs define pricing and packaging for new products. Over his career, he's worked with both B2C and B2B companies, ranging from startups to publicly traded enterprises. Dan, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Paris. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm excited for our conversation today. Same here. It's rare that I get to speak to someone with as much specific knowledge on pricing, SaaS pricing as you do. And so my first question is, I guess it's probably CEOs that are involved in pricing discussions. What do most CEOs get wrong when they think about pricing a SaaS product? It's a very common question. I've got a long list of items, but I think the most common thing that I see is that when it comes to SaaS pricing, and most executives think that what you charge determines your success. In fact, who and how you mm -hmm. charge determines your success. Well, what do you mean by that? How you charge? Yeah. So when we think about, you know, I get brought into a lot of rooms with teams that are struggling with pricing and oftentimes I'll say pricing and packaging, but then just, you know, as the conversation goes on, I'll just say pricing, but I mean both because it gets a little awkward to continue saying pricing and packaging, but it's mm -hmm. really that packaging element, how we charge. You know, I'll get brought into a lot of rooms and a lot of folks are having conversations around what I term the price level. So is this you know, $20 a user? Is it $100 a user? Is it $19.95? Should our prices end in fives or nines? And I love those conversations. They're super fun, but honestly, they're the least important. They come at the very end and they're the mm -hmm. easiest to change, especially in a B2B context, especially when you're throwing sales teams in the mix and discounting you know, the, the ultimate price level. You do have some wiggle room, but there's really important decisions around your packaging and SaaS packaging has Four different elements. You know, we can uh, I can elaborate if you want, but at a high level, there your price metric, your offer bundles or configurations, your price fences or structures, and your mm -hmm. pricing models. And mm -hmm. those are incredibly important because what we really are trying to do in a pricing and packaging exercise is align our pricing with our value story. 
the value mm-hmm. is the foundational element of a rigorous pricing exercise. So we really want to spend, if I was advising companies, I'd say spend most of your time on what the price tag goes on and little time worrying about what number goes on the price tag. And let's dig into this concept of value and and probably that's going to lead us to value-based pricing. Some SaaS products, I, I guess, have a harder time than others to quantify the value that's created. It could be that their product saves people time, or it could be that it streamlines a certain process that allows you to maybe to hire fewer people. But how should people think about value coming up with a, a value for a SaaS tool? What what approaches can people take? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of you know, we'll put a couple of touch points out there so there's a landscape for your listeners. The first thing is that, you know, pricing ultimately has two foundational relationships. And the one that everyone usually thinks about is its relationship to volume. But the mm-hmm. other is what we're talking about now is its relationship to value. And so in many industries, folks only consider its relationship to volume. And if anyone's taken an econ 101 class, you've saw, you know, your econ professor drew supply and demand curves and then you know, intersect mm-hmm. those two. And then you've got your, your market setting price. Uh, well, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, that rarely works out in practice. I, all props to all the lovely economics professors I've had in history and, and they make great books, et cetera, but very difficult to get those actual curves in, in the real world. But, you know, in, in software and in SaaS, right, we're often making innovative products and value clarification is a much more significant lever. It's much less like we're trying to convince someone, you know, to buy, you know, they're thinking about a hundred seats. So we, you know, push them to buy a thousand seats. You know, it's, Hey, are we going to buy your product or are we just going to stick with the status quo? So it's a value communication of like, Hey, what is this thing going to do? Is it going to cause more problems? Like it's going to solve. So there's a couple of different frameworks that we use to think about called value literacy improvement among the general population, because I find Mm -hmm. value tends to be one of these terms that is thrown around without much rigor. And again, if we're going to base an intelligent pricing approach on value, we should probably have a firm foundation, right? We just build it on sand. Mm -hmm. We're going to have, we're going to have, you know, shifting sands are not going to be a good foundation for our our long-term approach. So, you know, you, you hinted at a couple of things, which is, you know, Ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, there's, we think about these some functional benefits. There's really only two benefits that people get in the world from you know, a, a product, right? It's going to save me money or it's going to make me money, right? Now, mm-hmm. and so one of the first ideas of frameworks that I use when thinking about value is this, this gentleman named Tom Nagel. He wrote a seminal book on pricing called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing. And he created this model called the value cascade. And the value cascade is really thinking about these these related but different definitions of value. So the first is use value. And so use value is this idea of economists might also refer to this as utility. This is the sum of potential benefits customers could receive in the product. And this idea of it's going to save me money or make me money, these would be two types of functional value drivers that ultimately result in in net benefits to the company. There's other functional benefits like reducing risk, decreasing operating costs, increasing ability to comply, right? But the other framework I bring in besides the value cascade, and we'll, we'll, I'll continue to elaborate there, but is this idea of jobs to be done. And jobs to be done is incredibly important for my work because one of the things mm-hmm. that we don't want to lose sight of is the value that we get from products is not only in the functional outcome that helps us achieve. Also, there is emotional jobs. And emotional jobs to be done breaks up emotional jobs in two separate categories, which is personal jobs. So these are ones that have an emotional outcome for me. So I will feel a higher status. 
I'll feel less anxiety, more peace of mm -hmm. mind, a greater confidence, right? You know, this is why uh, somebody buys luxury goods, right? The, the Hermes or the Louis Vuitton handbag is no functionally different than the handbag you could buy at Target. Mm -hmm. The Hermes or Louis Vuitton people may be angry at me for saying that, but what you're buying is social status, social proof, right? A higher degree of confidence, right? So you're buying mm -hmm. this emotional benefit, right? So those benefits are real. They tend to be more promoted, I would say, or more prevalent in B2C markets, especially markets where the functional benefits have been relatively commoditized. This is why every insurance commercial you see has to ha be funny because it's like, you know, people are selling insurance. If they try to talk about functional benefits, first of all, I think functional benefits of most insurance companies, I'm going to get the insurance people mad at me. Uh, the most functional benefits of insurance companies are relatively safe, but also they're, they're competing at a different level, right? Coca-Cola is convincing you that you know, uh, Coca-Cola equals happiness. But then there's also this idea of social jobs. The, the beauty of humans is we are not just out for ourselves just to make more money or save more money or improve our own sense of self-worth. But we also do things for other people. We have pro-social outcomes. And so this is really important if we think about value in the context of a nonprofit or a government. You know, I'm doing things to improve society. This is like improving access to education, improving access to healthcare, to you know, suffrage, you know, voting rights for for people, right? Uh, action on climate, right, or, or environmental policies that you might imagine. Right. And so all of mm -hmm. these things are elements of value. We want to think about all of these elements very directly when we're thinking about the value that our products derive for customers. I say all that to say that you know we've only now talked about use value, which is the first step side of the, uh, the value cascade. Exchange value is the next step because although use value or utility is incredibly important because that is the sum benefits, you know, Nagel very rightly pointed out that in a pricing exercise, we can't take credit for all of the value that we create because a lot of that value, that utility is already encapsulated in the in reference prices that exist for other competitive products, right? So mm -hmm. what reference or exchange value helps us think through is what is the reference value? What is the price of the next best competitive alternative? And then what is our differentiated value versus that? versus that competitive because humans are not, you know, when we think about value or price, you know, value and price doesn't ever exist in a vacuum. We don't have absolute value meters, like a thermometer that we could tell, like even thermometers are relative versus, you know, the laws of physics eventually go down to absolute zero. So it does have an absolute base, but, mm -hmm. but value, we only tell relative changes, right? So, you know, you could only say something is more or less value. There's, I can't give you say, Hey, Here's this coffee cup. What's its absolute intrinsic value, right? It, it, there is none. It's only in, in relative to something else. Mm -hmm. And so, fun example when we think about this might be, you know, imagine uh, Elon Musk is trapped on a desert island, right? And he's there, you know, like the Gilligan Island folks from back of the back of the day. You know, he's there for months, years, and eventually a ship captain comes through and he goes, "Oh, hey, Elon, uh, I would love to take you off this island." The question is, what should Elon be willing to give up to get off the island? The answer is every single dollar he can he has in his bank account and every dollar he could beg, borrow, or steal from friends because all of his money in the world, all of his reputation isn't doing him any good on that island. So assume that this, this is going to be his one chance to get off, right? If we think about what happens now, Ship Captain 2 shows up with another boat. Well, Ship Captain 2 says, hey, Elon, you don't have to give me billions to get off the island. I'll do it for just a million. Okay, well, now there's a reference price. And so now what happens, we, we've now created a market for Elon to get off the island. 
So instead mm-hmm. of a billion, now the other guy says million, now they could have a tit for tat war. Or as we might expect, was the other guy says, well, you know what? I'll do it for a million five, but you know, my I've got a catamaran, so it'll be smoother sailing, and you know, I've got a a band on board, so it'll be, you'll have entertainment, and you can sleep in my quarters, so you'd be much more comfortable. And and by the way, like once we're back, you can use my boat at any time, right? And so now they're competing mm-hmm. on features and 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 benefits that are differential between the two. Yeah, what comes to mind is that when there's a reference point, that certainly is valid for mature SaaS categories. So I think when you're a new entrant into an existing category in SaaS and you're thinking about pricing, you absolutely have to refer to the, the competitor's pricing and you have to think about where you're going to fit in that, in that competitive landscape uh, among those other points of reference. Mm-hmm. Because buyers are going to consider price among their different options and they're going to they're observe that. And I get that. What about if you're one of these new, truly innovative category creators in SaaS? You're creating something that nobody really is looking for yet or knows they need yet, but it's an amazing product. You're bringing it to market. It's going to be a new category, but you have no reference points for pricing. How would you approach a pricing exercise then if you're a, if you're a SaaS category creator? Yeah. So I think this is a common trap. I think this number or percentage of products that you would put in the category you just outlined is infinitesimally small number one mm-hmm. so you know i think the the ultimate example uh, might be the Segway, right this is a product that nobody needed or nobody knew they needed and then apparently given the market you know adoption nobody necessarily wanted either right it's like well it's it's mm-hmm. not quite a car it's not a bicycle it's not a you know motorcycle it's this other thing i think that the trap that you've sort of folks lay when they think in this this realm and i think it's really a trap but it is Ultimately, this is one of the benefits of jobs to be done. I love jobs to be done because it really helps us think about competition in a nuanced way. I'll even not use the word competition, but competitive alternatives. Because when we're thinking of jobs to be done and we're doing it well, we're really in the problem space. We're really in the space of a customer is in a a context. So customer context is important and what outcome they're trying to achieve. And it's agnostic of any particular solution. It's like, I'm trying to make some progress in my life. And that's agnostic of, you know, I'm trying to get from point A to point B. That's agnostic of whether I'm going to walk there, I'm going to drive there, I'm going to take an airplane or a train, right? The solution, you know, is is undefined, right? And so I think the customer's jobs, for the most part, exist whether or not your product or product category exists. And so oftentimes there is just a, a status quo of most SaaS companies actually compete with email and spreadsheets, right? It's not that, you know, people are just, Mm -hmm. oh my God, all this workflow work that I was doing before is just, you know, I've got a buddy who's got a company, a CEO of a company of uh, in supply chain and helping, you know, all these companies with, with supply chain stuff. And a lot of it was, yeah, it's all just email and spreadsheets and they've, they've put into, you know, interconnected workflow tools, you know, it's very, you know, I'm, I'm dramatically undercovering the work that the company has done. But to a certain mm-hmm. extent, like those jobs were getting done, they were just getting done poorly. There's there's errors, there's data risks, there's uh, all sorts of you know efficiencies that that aren't happening, right? And so that is really the competitive. So almost always there is a competitive alternative available. It's just mm-hmm. not. We could even punch holes in my Elon Musk stranded on desert island. You know, he could pull. Who is it? Was it Thor Heyerdahl, the the guy who discovered the uh, French Polynesian islands, sailed to South America on a raft, like? You know, Elon could string together some 
some bamboo and some coconuts and and float himself to you know across the ocean right but he's probably he's yeah. calculated the risk of doing so is improbably high so he's yeah. decided yeah so the ship you know is is you know truly not the only competitor he has right um and so mm-hmm. i think oftentimes we really have to look at what is that um competitive alternative so you know once we understand mm-hmm. that though then we can really think through okay there is some there's probably some process going on in your target market in your the customers you're looking to help make progress and so understanding value in that situation really comes from a process of asking these customers these prospects questions about their business so ultimately mm-hmm. what we're trying to understand you know for and, and this applies whether or not you know, you believe that you compete with your standard set of uh, other uh, SaaS vendors or you know spreadsheets and email or something else but ultimately we're trying to develop a soft skill of driving a discussion to a dollar sign around what is it that our customers are currently doing? What is the, you know, what does that value chain look like? How do they make customers, how do they make their customers successful and make money for their business? And then where are the like set of blockers, set of inefficiencies that that are happening, right? That we can unlock with whatever mm-hmm. solution we're, we're bringing to market, right? So, so it really is a soft skill of, of diving in there um, around what is, you know, what are they doing today to mm-hmm. move forward, to make progress? And then what is the, what is sort of the the new alternative that we can unlock, right? And that would be the case whether or not somebody is buying another product off the shelf today, or or you know, or doing it you know through some homegrown fashion. Okay, understood. Now a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P, dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now. Back to the episode. Let's pivot over to the very popular notion of willingness to pay, WTP. How would you define willingness to pay? Why is it important and how could it be measured? Yeah. So before we do that, what I want to do is I want to encapsulate the final part of the value cascade because, well, actually, because willingness to pay is on that journey. So we talked about use value, which is utility. We talked about exchange value, which is this idea of being compared to a next best competitive alternative. And then what is my uh, positive or negative differentiation compared to that? The next step is this idea of perceived value. So what perceived value helps us recognize is that customers are not spreadsheets. They're not absolute maximizers. We tend to make psychological shortcuts. We don't know every last thing about every product we buy, right? We don't know the market near our, your customers do not know your space anywhere near to the level of detail you do. Right. And so while you might be, you know, head to head against a competitor with 250 features and 200 of them, you know, are exactly the same. And then, you know, some of them, they, you, you know, on the bottom of the list, you know, you have, and some of them, they don't like most of your customers are not doing that math. Like there's, it just gets to a level of complexity for most purchase process. And so what do we do? We look at things, you know, and this is important for us as marketers. This is important for us as marketers because we have the ability to, you know, it's not just, okay, we're going to save you this much money or we're going to save you this much time or, or whatever, but we are going to use shortcuts 
architecture diagrams, right? The ability to sort of break out, okay, hey, here's here's what here's how we've built the system and how there here's how it drives value for you as a communication tool. Logo gardens, right? Using social proof, right? Te- customer testimonials. This is where it's so important for marketers to leverage that power because as humans, it's a messy world out there, right? And and mm. although we can get very, you know, I, I encourage people to get more precise with their you know, value definitions, especially if you're going to take on a value-based pricing approach or orientation. I think ultimately we need to realize that, you know, hu- the human buying process is, is messy, okay? And so, you know, the exchange value is sort of the maximum price, but ultimately our perceived value, because also, right, if I say I'm going to, hey, uh, Paris, I'm going to increase your revenue hundred percent. I'm going to decrease your costs 50%. People will be like, ah, oh, you know, I'm sure it works for other people like that, but you haven't seen our company. Our company's really screwed up. So although your claims might be right and you're telling me the truth, like as soon as we bring it in here, I don't know, I'm going to discount what we're going to get about 25%, right? And so that's the customer's perceived value. So why did I talk about perceived value before we talk about willingness to pay? Because willingness to pay, it's not a physical property out there in the universe that we can go measure. Willingness to pay is fundamentally driven by a customer's perceived value. So we think about you know, the exchange value being the upper limit on perceived value. Perceived value is the upper limit on willingness to pay, right? So as mm-hmm. marketers, if we don't really think about the control that we have over perceived value, right? We're, we're fundamentally uh, hamstringing ourselves and being able to understand and drive maximum willingness to pay among customers. So willingness to pay is, at, you know, I've talked around it, but at a high level is what is the dollar value that I would be you know, willing to part with, you know, for one unit of the product effectively, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and, and why is this dichotomy between perceived value or this relationship between perceived value and willingness to pay so important is because we need, whenever we're going out and measuring this, we all, we need to be very cognizant of, you know, who are we talking to? As I talked about began at the beginning of the conversation, you know, it's very important like, who and how we charge. The different customers in different contexts are going to have different willing space. So the ultimate example of this is, you know, if I asked you, hey, I want to sell you a bottle of Avion water, uh, Paris, how much are you pay for it? Uh, you might say uh, $3 or three euros, whatever it might be, but maybe your willingness to pay is lower. Let's say I ask you that question after you've been wandering through the desert for 20 days. You, you might be more in the Elon Musk camp of like, I will pay you everything in my bank account right now because my alternative is I'm going to die of thirst out here in the wandering mm. in the desert. You know, so the context, the customer context is incredibly important to understanding that. And then also how, you know, as we, you know, I've got a new widget, you know, it's the greatest new SaaS tool, you know, the world has ever seen. And I use a couple of different, you know, value propositions, right? I might get a willingness to pay number from you of X. If I change those value propositions, I might get answer of Y. And so we have to understand how what we're doing affects measurement. Now, this is not to say it's this is a bleak picture and nobody it's just guessing and nobody can get any 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 sense at all. I think number one is you know most companies do not have any willingness to pay conversations with their customers. And I'm not talking that your sales guy is trying to set a price. I'm talking about your internal product or marketing teams having in-depth value and willingness to pay conversations with your customers when products are in development. It's very different to ask a customer. It, it pains me because it's very different to ask somebody, hey, do you want this thing? First of all, as a product manager, never ask, do you want this thing? Because the answer is always, yeah, yeah. You have to ask people for make trade-offs. But similarly, mm-hmm. if I say, hey, do you want this thing? For $10 is very different than you want this thing. 
my mind goes to a very different place. Like the value is the pleasure and the dollar is the pain, right? So, so there, there's a, there's an inherent trade-off we have to ask people to make. And I feel like, you know, we mm-hmm. don't even do that in the sort of development process. So then is the best way to determine willingness to pay to, to ask the customer directly? Yeah. So there's, so I'll give, I'll give a couple high level overviews of, of willingness to pay research. So never ask somebody, what would you pay for this? That is direct questioning. Um, and researchers have known for, I don't know, 60 years that that you'll just get garbage uh, answers. So don't ask like, Hey, what would you pay for this? There's, there's kind of two general categories of willingness to pay research or methodologies. So the first is direct questioning and the second is indirect questioning. So there, if you're going to do direct questioning, there is a much better set of ways to do that. The most common way that I see in practice is what's called uh, the Van Westendorp method. So Van Westendorp was a the last name of a Dutch economist who developed the methodology in the 1970s. So it's named after him. And there's several others that are named after uh, economists have gone along the way, but Van Westendorp is probably the most commonly. And so Van Westendorp, we ask a series of ranged questions. So when I talk about ranged questions, there's four that go in the Van Westendorp model. So if I'm doing a, a face-to-face in-depth interview with a customer or prospect, I may only, I may do a truncated version, but generally it goes at what price would product be so cheap that you would question its quality? At what price would you buy this product and consider it a bargain? At what price would you know you consider this product as getting expensive, but you would still make a purchase? And then four is at what price would you consider this product to be getting prohibitively expensive such that you would just say absolutely not. And so what you've done there is you've asked You've gotten ranges. And so the main major benefit of that is that it when you, I ask you, what would you pay for it? It doesn't give me any sense of, you know, we need to think of willingness to pay as a range, even in our own minds. You know, anyone who purchases anything, right, goes through this exercise on a probably a weekly basis, right? At least when they're visiting the grocery store, be like, I don't know, I'm going to, I'm going to buy, you know, X, be like, you know, I'm going to buy a new smartphone. I don't, my last one was like 700. I, they probably got better for that price range. I'd be willing to pay maybe 800 to 500 to 800, you know, and that's even in my own head. I'm not even trying to lie to a researcher. I'm not trying to bias anyone's results. I just, I'm just kind of even, you know, there's a range of uncertainty about what I'd be willing to pay for a generic mm-hmm. next smartphone uh, in my head. So when we ask someone the direct question of what would you be willing to pay for this? We completely, we just assume that it's just like, oh, there's just a number inside your head that you're absolutely willing to pay. Uh, and and I can get it out. But if we ask a range, right, we can get a, a richer tapestry, and then we could do that over time with multiple prospects. We could start to narrow in mm-hmm. on a on a. Uh, there's there's ways to aggregate that uh, data from those questions together. The other set of methods is are indirect, and uh, I won't go too in depth on those at the moment unless you want to. But uh, those are normally what we think of as the uh, conjoint or discrete choice modeling uh, exercises, and so those really help us. Like in that, those questions we're not asking people directly what they'd be willing to pay for products, but we're asking them to sort of simulate a purchasing experience because we found that over time in uh, research uh, methods that if we can make people make trade-offs in a simulated environment, while those preferences tend to be empirically valid uh, later in terms of uh, what the the kinds of trade-offs that they'll make. So you you may have participated in a survey like this of, of yourself, but you say, hey, Here's three different uh, flat screen TVs. One's 55 inch, one's 65, one's 75 inch, one's Sony, one's LG, one's whatever. And here's three price points. Which one would you pick? And then you run through a series of questionnaires like that. And by doing that, we can get uh, a better sense of, of what your kind of trade-off preferences are that we can then uh, do a bunch of complicated math and statistics behind the scenes to uh, result in different trade-offs you're willing to make for, for a dollar of, of, of value. 
Mm-hmm. Great. So, Dan, to summarize, really, there are three different approaches here that we can, or SaaS marketers can triangulate. One would be to try to estimate the utility of the product. What is the, the pure usefulness of the product? And can we try to quantify that? The second would be exchange value, which is really the, the notion of comparables or, or what are the, the alternatives out there and what are they priced at? And the third would be perceived value, which is underpinned by this concept of the willingness to pay. And would you agree then that the best process at setting a price is to try to triangulate among those three different approaches and and then just figure out maybe one of them one of them has a high, higher weight than the other, but really those are the three different valuation methods. Yeah, so I think you know if I was to give some some sort of brass tacks, right? So I think the the value cascade is really important for us to understand sort of value at an explicit level and how value mm-hmm. ultimately migrates into an idea of willingness to pay. If I was to give some just very you know direct advice, you know I would say the number one thing is that you don't really get to have a choice as to if you will have a pricing conversation with your with your market. Decision you really get to make is when you will have that conversation. Mm-hmm. So what I see companies doing, you know, all the stuff I've said is, is sort of background on, on, on how value and price are, are related, I think is important. But I think the important thing is we don't, you know, there's, there's some bias out there that says, you know, one, we just don't, we just, it's a blind spot. We don't ask customers about willingness to pay at all. And then two, we ask about it very, very late in the process, right? Versus I would say the important thing is help. This could even be as an element for, you know, maybe more for the product managers uh, who may be listening. Because then we can look at actually driving our roadmap in terms of what customers have indicated they're willing to pay for versus, oh yeah, they just said they, a bunch of people said they wanted it, right? Uh, which is which is the death knell for a bunch of uh, poor business results because you'd be like, oh, well, they mm-hmm. said they wanted it. You're like, yeah, well, and then at some point we had to put a price on it and then nobody decided if they were actually willing to pay for it. So I would say, however you use, whether it's a, a qualitative method or one of the quantitative methods that I've outlined have those conversations with your customers, really try to understand and elaborate how your product will make a a functional difference for them in their environment. Understand what trade-offs they're making against, you know, your, to solve the same needs, right? So the more detailed you can get about understanding what that context is that your customers have, the better you'd be prepared to have a rigorous uh, price uh, associated with your product as well. Great. So let's pivot over to the hot debate about freemium versus free trial. And a lot of the clients that we work with, they, they do product-led growth. And usually you can either have a f- perpetual freemium or you can have a free trial that expires. And then at that point, you have to either say goodbye or you have to upgrade. I've seen pluses and minuses of both. For the most part, with freemium, there, there's a much, much lower conversion rate when there's a lifetime freemium model. So you may have 1% to 5% of your freemium base converting up to paid over their lifetime. There are strategic reasons to, to still do that. With free trial, I've seen as high as 50, 60% of free trials at expiration converting to paid. But how does a SaaS pricing marketer, if given the decision, do we go down the path of creating a, a free trial experience with an expiration or a freemium experience? How do you think about that decision? Yeah, is, I love this question. So I don't think it's any secret, at least anyone who's heard me before, that I'm not a big fan of freemium. Uh, let me first just paint a quick picture. So freemium and free trial, I believe that these are, they both increase what we talked about before, which is this idea of perceived value. 
So there's something that happens when we use a product that triggers something in our lizard brains that just doesn't happen no matter how good your marketing team is at your copy, at your mm -hmm. videos, at your white papers, at your trade show booth, right? Until I get my hands on the product and I use it and I see my data in there, I have that aha moment. I think we've all gone through that. If we used, if we used a free trial or freemium software, you're like, oh my God, this is going to change my life. Where you know you could have sat there with a thirty-minute demo with a salesperson and just you're like ah, I still don't get it. So and we've known this for years, right? This is not only in the SaaS world, but you know, if you walk around the grocery stores here, at least in the U.S., the especially on like a Saturday, you have someone handling a, a toothpick with a piece of sausage on it, right? And they're because they're they're trying to you know oh hey sample this you're like oh I never yeah. even considered it before, right? And so now you you throw that in your cart too. So we know this, right? And and this is increasing perceived value. So I I definitely recommend things like that. And I think a free trial is ultimately the better answer. Anytime someone says freemium, use free trial. So I will, let me quickly just caveat because I spend pretty much all of my time these days in the B2B world. I think this is one of those elements that is a play that is not terrible in the B2C world, just doesn't translate well to a B2B space. You mentioned the conversion rate, uh, and absolutely, I, I agree. Best-in-class freemium companies, it's between like 1% and 3% convert you know, users to customers. And I'll use that term explicitly. A user is someone who's using your product, a customer is someone who's paying you for it. And so you just need a massive market in order for it to work. And most B2B companies are not in that space. And there, you know, all this advice I give, there are a couple of rare exceptions, uh, but for the most part, a free trial, Either 14 to 30 day free trial tends to show the sort of the best conversion, especially in a B2B world. I'm a little bit leery of people going seven day trial. This, I think, starts to tread on. I want you to buy, to buy the way I want you to buy, not the way the customer wants to buy. I think that's when we start shrinking out and pretty soon we're going to have 20 minute free trials. It's like, give them some mm -hmm. time to like try the product, get the value. Like no one's going to abuse your product in 14 days. But in general, you know, freemium just has a whole bunch of drawbacks. Number one is it's really challenging to move customers from free. So we just had this entire conversation about value. So you know, willingness to pay. Well, you've now implied to the market that our product isn't worth paying anything for. So you've now anchored them to zero. You've anchored the value to zero because you said, oh, you could use our thing for free for forever. And so it's really hard if we think about moving someone from even zero to dollars to a penny, we call it the penny gap in the pricing world. Uh, the penny gap is an infinite increase in price. I remember your, your math class. Yeah. And so the amount of activation it takes to move people to whip out their credit card, you might as well just go get those people from scratch. I just don't think that there's that much of a benefit. Again, comparing mm -hmm. it to, you know, I think a free trial, you know, we deal with uh, some very powerful psychological principles of loss aversion, right? Yeah. Um, scarcity. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. Yeah. Scarcity, loss aversion. Hey, take this puppy, free, you know, free puppy, bring it back in a week if you don't like it, right? Nobody brings the puppy back because they fall in love with it and they're like, oh no, I don't want to leave. But freemium never has that, that loss aversion, right? Um, and I, 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 know I see a lot of ink spilled these days about reverse trials and stuff. And I think it's all just smoke and mirrors. I think it's just, just go with a free trial. Stop, stop jerking everybody around. Uh, yeah. Well, I was going to throw in something else too, which is that the free trial, it gives you the opportunity to showcase the full breadth of, of your features. It gives you a chance to showcase the entire product because usually in a free trial, there, there are no limitations on features at all. So you can, sh you can really show them the best version of your product. And then you can set that bar very, very high in terms of uh, their perceived quality. Well, as mm -hmm. a product manager, I completely agree. And as a product manager and product strategy person at heart, it really 
boggles my mind because really I'm concerned about the, the overall customer experience. It's not just the features, right? And I think too many people, we mm -hmm. have this discussion, they get really <laughs> caught up in the, oh, well, then they'll continue to use the product. Okay, what happens when that freemium person needs support? What kind of support experience are they getting? Probably not much no. of anything at all, right? Yeah. Because, because it's really expensive to provide that support. So you want to create these passioned, delighted customers, right? Who are singing your praises around the world. And then you're going to give them a sub, you know, overall experience. Oh, they have access to the product, but like, we don't want to talk to them. And if they have a problem, like we're, not, you know, versus if you're at a free trial, we're rolling out the red carpet as a sales team, as a support team. Like, oh, what do we need? Oh, we got a deal on the line. Like what's, you know, whatever this person, you know, we're going to respond in 20 minutes to their, to their, you know, thing premium, like good luck if you ever get someone to respond to you via email or, or phone. So I just think it, we short circuit ourselves and we, we don't think the strategy through of like, well, what is the customer experience going to be? I think ultimately, you know, as a, also as a product manager, I've seen this where, you know, if I think about what are, what are the elements of packaging? I hinted at the beginning, but we really haven't touched on it much is, you know, we think about offer configurations as an element of packaging. So, you know, a lot of people in the SaaS world have good, better, best. And usually the free sort of tier is that, you know, first tier. Well, you know, my general overall philosophy, I'll truncate this because of time, but, you know, it's like each of those offers on your page, you know, good, better, or best. I generally dislike the philosophy of calling it good, better, best, because it's like good, better, best for who? For you? Well, that's the wrong frame. We really think need to think about creating those configurations as a best fit for a particular kind of customer in a particular kind of situation, given jobs to be done. Mm -hmm. Well, then the question is, who is the freemium for? Is the freemium just for someone who hasn't recognized that they actually belong in one of the other tiers? Well, then why not just give them a free trial of that? What tends to happen, it's been my experience, is that the people who go into free and stay in free aren't actually your customers. There's something else, but they're not your customers. And so what does that happen? Well, if we think about this conversion rate of one to 3% turned into paid customers, what happens over time when you have a freemium offer is that the vast majority of your user base, of your of overall total users, if you look at that pie chart, it's like 95% in the, are free. So what is mm -hmm. that massive amount of noise added to your signal coming in from all dimensions of people asking for feature requests, of people asking for whatever? It, because you know, I've, I've been in these groups before where you know, you've got internal Slack communication and some support person raises a flag, says, hey, you know, customer wants X feature request. Well, it's, it's rarely does that cover customer ID. And if it did, like, you know, the busy product manager probably doesn't have time to go into the you know, database and look up who that customer is. Is that a paying customer? Is that a free user? And so you're throwing a bunch of, you know, user noise onto your product roadmap and to the, you know, that what your support and, and product teams are listening to that doesn't even apply. I, I was working with mm -hmm. one B2B SaaS company where they had a free tier. And, you know, I went to like their, it was just like G2 Crowd or, or Trustpilot or something like that. And like 97% of their reviews were from like people at home using the product for like their families, right? And it was just like a B2B SaaS like product through and through. It was not for, it was, it wasn't, they didn't have like the family yeah. edition, but that complete was the vast noise. majority. You know, so it was complete noise. So then if you think as a marketer, I mean, you know, I didn't talk to the CMO about this at the time. I was working, I was mostly supporting the, the, the product organization, but I was like, oh my God, can you imagine the damage that they constantly have to undo of real buyers going, uh, the real B2B buyers going to their trust pilot and seeing like, oh, it's really great for, you know, using it to work with my kids and be like, what? Like, you know, so all the work we've done on messaging and webinars or whatever, like just gets, you know, and it just gets smashed against the rocks of this, you know, I mean, it, anyway, so. Uh, there, yeah, there they're, are, they're really they're drowning out. All that noise is drowning out the the real paying customers. 
and, and their yeah. needs. But, uh, you know, there there are some very explicit distinctions I'll make because, you know, people always be like, well, you know, it's a, the freemium is great because it's this holy war. People always throw out the, well, what about whatever? So I'll, I'll throw out just a couple of things here. So so one is for developer-focused tools, sometimes it really makes sense to have a free offer. And why is that the case? Because if I've got, you know, say this is a developer-focused tool that I, I, you know, they plug in via like an API or something, that developer has got to use that product in staging or development for three, six, nine months. They're not in a buying cycle. They're just trying to make the thing work. And and that and that person on the other end mm-hmm. isn't making any money from your, but they're just trying to like build their software. And so it makes no sense to put them in a 30-day free trial and then just have sales teams constantly like hounding them, extending keys because they're not actually using it. So it's better in that case to have a massively hamstrung free offer that they can use in development but no one would ever try to roll that in production because their system would just fall over. It'd be like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. no, we're not trying to actually run this and make revenue in production, right? Um, so it's so that makes that type of thing makes sense. I think the other one that gets thrown out a lot, which makes sense, is something like Zoom. So Zoom has one, first of all, when we went to COVID, their entire world was their market, right? So they they maybe mm-hmm. straddled that B two B B two C space themselves. But also mm-hmm. there's you know there's inherent there's an inherent network effect, and I think you see it less these days. But there was a period of you know, maybe like 2012 with Facebook's success to like 2015, where you talk about it, every startup would talk about how they had, had inherent network effects and just almost none of them did unless you were a social network company. And so mm-hmm. especially in the B2B space. So, but it was like, oh, I got a Zoom link. Now I'm using the product, right? I, you know, and so it, it turns into this massive marketing campaign. So there's, there are kind of unique situations where, where I'll see that uh, work. And I've got one last question, Dan, as we wrap up. And I think this is something that I get all the time and I get frustrated by this a lot of times looking at different websites. Should a SaaS company, B2B SaaS company, display pricing on their websites? So let's see, I'll give you, I'll give you the short answer. So number one, look at what your competitors are doing because if, you know, you're, the only, if you're the odd man out in not showing your pricing, you look like you have something to hide, right? So really mm-hmm. important to have competitive context. Right. Because if you're if you're thinking like, well, you know, we don't want our competitors to know. It's like, look, if, if all your competitors have public pricing and packaging, you're just not even going to end up on the short list. So just. Yeah. You won't make it to the decision. You won't make it. You'll make it to a. You'll make it to a sales call. You'll make it to a discussion. Right. So, so I think that's important is competitive context. Data on this is a little bit trickier to come by than you might imagine. The best data I could see is about 50 to 75 percent of SaaS companies do publish their pricing and packaging. Mm-hmm. There are kind of three main models or, or ways that, to think about it. And each of I'll, I'll kind of go through the kind of decision really quickly on on how you might think through it. So, you know, the first is sort of full public pricing and packaging. The second would be no pricing and packaging information on the website. And the third would be, which is kind of a hybrid of the two is we have public packaging, but no pricing, right? So you might imagine we show our offer configurations, we say the price scales by user, but then there's like, there's no actual uh, price. The contact sales button instead of the Yeah, 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 call us, right. And obviously there's there's hybrid of hybrid because some people might have all the pricing shown except for an enterprise plan and then enterprises call us, et cetera. Yeah, that's pretty Um, common too, yeah. yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. So why might you do one one or the other? So, So the first one, you show everything. Look, if you've got standardized packaging, you've got better, best, right? That can be very helpful in showing everyone the value and like it could be a reiteration of your value story, right? If if pricing and packaging is done well, it can accelerate and enhance all the other hard work that your marketers are doing on the rest of the website, right? Because it just, it just aligns. You're not all of a sudden taking uh, users on this completely different journey you're just saying, hey, remember all that value I told you about on the landing page? Here's how, you know, here's how it aligns with the value. The more value you get, the more money we get, right? We're both better off, right? That's that's ultimately the feeling you're trying to put forward. 
I see the standardized pricing and packaging again in horizontal markets with relatively homogenous markets it tends to be public pricing and packaging in much more high volume and velocity or product led growth models. Uh, why is that the case? Because if in a high volume and velocity model, yes, I might have sales assisted, which has kind of big, been a big topic recently, not just tech touch or no touch uh, sales, but maybe they're sales assisted. But even then, I don't want to have expensive sales time dedicated to telling someone the price just for them to be like, oh, that's way more expensive than I thought. Like that's not a fit for us, right? It's like you, so it's almost a qualifying mechanism to protect your, your sales team from talking to unqualified prospects. So that's yeah. one way to think about it. So no public pricing or packaging. If you've got more of an enterprise sales motion, some, some markets just, just kind of expected. If you've got complex you know, packaging or offers, I had a client once who they had like a 50 page price list. It's like, yeah, you could publish that, but good luck, uh, you know, if that does anything for you, right? Because you just need the salesperson to walk it through anyway. Yeah. Or, you know, the other element is like, you know, there could be a high difference in willingness to pay between segments or, or a relatively small addressable market. Like, you know, if you're just selling to the Fortune 100 or you're just selling to the federal governments around the world, like you probably don't need price, public pricing packaging. Actually, you're probably going to get it anyways if you're selling to the governments because there's all the GSA regulations or equivalents per different economies around the world or different governments around the world. And then, you know, mm -hmm. then there's the finally the hybrid approach. So again, you may want to do this if you know, you've got standardized good, better, best packaging where you know, it helps you tell your value story, but maybe there's you know high difference in, in willingness to pay between segments or there's a small addressable market. Great. Well, Dan, I, I, that was going to be the last question, but I do want to ask one more before we wrap up. And it's a broader stroke, which is how do you know it's time to raise your price? And then how do you pull that off? So in pricing is simple, but it's not easy. For any pricing decision, we need to understand is what is our expected change in revenue? What's our expected change in cost? And so we need to think through that strategically. Now it's easy to say, and then filling in those numbers can be, you know, difficult work. And, you know, this can be things, you know, and then what think about costs, right? What's the cost of our change program? What's it going to cost in terms of communication to customers internally? What's mm -hmm. it going to cost us to potentially do research to validate this, et cetera. So what might be some triggers that it's time to raise your prices? If customers just blurt out to your team, oh my God, I can't believe how cheap you guys are. That might be a, that might <laughs> be a, a signal. Clear signal huh? Yeah. Uh, if they gush about how much ROI you create for them, nice. you know, uh, above and beyond, that's, uh, you know, may, might be considered excessive. If you haven't raised prices or changed prices in several years, it might be time to raise your prices. And then look, I think in terms of how to execute a price change, well, that's, that's a multi-million dollar question. I'd say the number one thing is be strategic. Understand, again, what is our expectation? What is, what is the goal? One, I think one thing that's very important we haven't really touched on is for any of these changes, what is your objective, right? Because people say, I want to optimize my price, but the optimization of anything only makes sense with an objective in mind. I want to optimize for revenue. I want to optimize for profit. You know, it's like, we're just, there's no general optimization to, to life. I think people always want the, you know, the hacks, right? It's like, but there's like everything in pricing has a trade-off. So what are we optimizing towards and be very clear about that? And then going through, what do we think is the risk? What do we think is the impact? Uh, having a very structured communication plan, having that we could think again in, in terms of, uh, we haven't really touched on customer segmentation in this discussion, but you know, customer segmentation is, is really important. So I want to think about, especially in a B2B context, it could be very much the case in a B2B context where 20% of my customers make 80% of my revenue. So I may not want to touch those customers at the first brush. I also mm -hmm. may want to get their opinion of what we're planning before I actually roll it out to understand what their possible 
possible reactions might be and, and possible feedback on, on things we can improve. But also I may want to start, you know, it's unlike, you know, Netflix, right? Everyone's paying whatever it is, $12.99 a month. Obviously they have different tiers, but it doesn't, you know, they don't have a, you know, a JP Morgan or a Disney or a Sony account, right? That's like going to make or break their entire year if that company leaves. Whereas your B2B yeah. product manager or product marketer might have that customer. So we might want to think about how do we roll this out in a structured way, learning as we roll changes out to make sure that we don't, we're being smart about the revenue we're putting at risk, but also the potential upside. Yeah. Speaking of Netflix, Dan, I assume you've got a Netflix account. Would you pay $5 more per month for Netflix if you, if you were forced to? I don't know, man. They better get stranger things here quicker. <laughs> Just a quick yes or no. I mean, really, if I, if I put, put you on the spot and I said, your Netflix subscription is going to go up by $5. Are you, are you going to stay in? I would say yes. Okay, great. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Uh, willingness to pay. We could go into so many other topics, and I think we'll have to have you back on the show, Dan, to explore that more. I think pricing is often overlooked. It's taken for granted. The process of setting prices, I think, is often rushed and not revisited frequently enough. And you have really helped shed some really great light on how to, to think about all these things. So thanks very much for being on the show, Dan. And where, where can people find you online? Yeah, well, I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Uh, Dan Belkowski on LinkedIn. Just let me know you heard me on the show so I can separate it from the rest of the LinkedIn spam. I try to blog uh, about this stuff uh, semi-regularly on my website, podcast.com. So folks can also reach out to me there. Great. Well, thanks again, Dan. This has been a real treat. Appreciate the time and the conversation, Paris. It was fun. Thank you. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P dot online. Have a great day.